The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hi, this is Steve. Believe it or not, John and I decided to do 1776 for the 4th of July way back at the end of 2019. We figured it would be a fun way to celebrate our national birthday. Of course, back then, we had absolutely no idea how tumultuous, tragic, contentious, and fundamentally transformative 2020 would be. Now, if I had seen this film 30 years ago like John did, I would probably have a very different impression of it. However, seeing it for the first time in the spring of 2020, with everything going on in the world, with our society more angry, combative, and fragile than at any moment in my lifetime, with the deepest scars of our nation's complex history opening up again before our very eyes, this film, for me, became more than just a fun musical about our founding fathers. Although it certainly is that. It became an examination of the very soul of America. And this, of course, is what The Cinephiles is all about. Not just a deep dive into great films, but an exploration of the ideas, controversy, and complexity behind those films. So if you haven't seen 1776, I highly recommend a journey to our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream this musical, along with every other film we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on Patreon, you could be listening to an all-new cinephile short on what can only be described as a new golden age of television. So, that's a discussion of Peak TV exclusively on patreon.com slash thecinephiles and a profound, complex conversation about the origins of the American nation with part two of 1776 this Friday on The Cinephiles. A half million souls in chains. And Dr. Franklin calls it a luxury. Maybe you should have walked out with the South. You forget yourself, sir. I founded the first anti-slavery society on this continent. Oh, don't wave your credentials at me. Perhaps it's time you had them renewed. The issue here is independence. Perhaps you've forgotten that fact, but I have not. <laughs> And welcome back to the cinephiles we're continuing our exploration of the musical 1776 in honor of our nation's birthday because we just passed the fourth of july yeah. happy independence day john happy uh belated independence day steve yeah yeah and uh when we left off i think we should jump right back in sure. um we just had jefferson just got the job to write the declaration of independence and we cut to him back at his house or wherever it is he's alone he's sharpening the, his pen his quill he's angry he's sitting on this very strange spinning chair slash desk which is yeah. one of thomas jefferson's many inventions super jealous of this desk <laughs> i know i i know i have a spin chair and a desk but i like the spin chair desk combo i i almost like was like do these still exist i would like one i think that the internet must be able to provide this for you <laughs> I mean, come on. I'll put it on my Amazon wish list for my fans to buy me one. But yeah, go ahead. And we cut to Adams and Franklin in a crowd. And I just have one ridiculous piece of trivia as they walk through this crowd. The pig 
that they walk by is Arnold from Green Acres. <laughs> For our older fans who will get that <laughs> reference, that is awesome. That is awesome. So in the first part, we had the fountain from the opening of Friends, and now we have the pig from Green Acres. Did it outlive the show? I feel like is the show still going in 1972? Whenever this comes, I uh, I don't know. It's I you know what's so funny is I watched that show. Yeah, I watched because there was only so many things on TV. I watched what was on TV. Yeah, and that was on. And then I watched Petticoat Junction. Oh, Petticoat Junction. Now, now we're now we're going deep into the back of the resume there. Yeah, uh, until 1971. So the pig well, outlived the show. The, the the show. So he was out of work. He was this out is of work? an unemployed pig. You want to do a musical? Oh, man. Not a musical. Not Not another. Um, (laughs) So anyway, Franklin and Adam show up. They hear the violin music playing. Ah, Jefferson. Are you finished? And Jefferson looks just destroyed. Yeah, dead. Yeah. And he hands Adams a tiny piece of paper. There comes a time in the lives of men when it becomes necessary to advance from that subordination in which they have hitherto rivet. This is terrible. Where's the rest of it? And Jefferson points out all the scraps of paper on the floor. A whole week. The entire earth was created in a week. Someday, you must tell me how you did it. <laughs> that is a great joke. It is a great joke. <laughs> that is a it good is. joke. And we've built to that joke because of how everyone's been joking about Adams is such a, uh, a, a, a I don't know, a grandiose person who likes yes. to push people to do his will. Look at him, Franklin. Virginia's most famous lover. Virginia abstains. <laughs> Which is brilliant. There's a lot of double meanings in that. Oh, yeah. um, and in walks this woman. Franklin kind of says hello and asks who she is, and that is his wife. And yeah. that is a totally unrecognizable to me Blythe Danner. Yeah, beautiful Blythe Gorgeous. Danner. Yeah. Because she's a fantastic actor who I've seen in tons of things, always playing very complicated, dramatic, intense roles. Yeah. And here she's playing the young, romantic, beautiful lead, the ingenue. Yeah. yeah. And let's just say that she and Mr. Jefferson only have eyes for each other. <laughs> John, who is she? His wife. I hope. What makes you think so? Because I sent for her. You want? Well, it simply occurred to me that the sooner his problem was solved, the sooner our problem is solved. It's good thinking, John. <laughs> this never happened. Martha no. Jefferson was ill. She had just had a miscarriage. She did not come to Philadelphia. Come along, John. Come along where? There's work to be done. Obviously. Good God. You don't mean to say that... I mean, they're not going to... In the middle of the afternoon. Not everybody's from Boston, John. What is so great about this, uh, too, Steve, is that, you know, right when John Adams comes close to being kind of an antagonist in the film, there's a moment that softens him. There's a, the, that moment when, he, when you find out that he's the one that's sent for Martha. It lets you also know how intelligent in the film, obviously, because right. it's not really John Adams, a version of him. But intelligent, how he, how intelligent he is. Like, uh, uh, I know this guy, even though I just walked in and saw that this is the best he's done for a week, I already had an idea in my head that if he, if the quicker we can solve his problem, the quicker our problem would get solved. So even with all the act he does about being upset about it, he also knows there's a backup plan, and that's Martha Jefferson. 
I think it's super important because I think it, it makes us like him. Yes. And it also shows this other side to him. And I think it reveals that the reason that he's so intense is that he's fighting for something really important. Yeah. Yeah. That if he wasn't that that's what's making him do the things he does. And and by the way, almost all the people that John Adams supposedly dislikes in this movie, he liked. Yeah. Certainly much later on, he had tremendous conflict with Jefferson, which they yes. resolved at the end of their lives. But at this time, they got along really well. In fact, there's only one person in the Congress that John Adams really didn't like, and he didn't like him for the rest of his life. Wow. And that man is Ben Franklin. Ironically, Ben yeah. Franklin. He thought of Franklin as full of it, self-indulgent, <laughs> egotistical, right. uh, too whimsical, too too much of a sensualist. Yeah. And it got much, much worse because they were, I think, in Paris together because Adams was traveling, raising money and funds for the war during the revolution. And, and, that's, and Franklin was there some of the time before Jefferson became the ambassador to Paris. And so yeah. he really didn't like Franklin then. Franklin was, would indulge his tastes. So yes, let's, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing we hear is the violin is playing Jefferson's violin, and then the violin <laughs> peters out. Yeah. And Adam says, "Incredible." <laughs> the way William Daniel Daniel says "incredible" should be uh, put in a bottle and saved for all time. It's just incredible just the way he does it I, I think one of the really interesting things that happens in this film is that because of the way they did it we actually get a person who we normally just see as a supporting actor a character yeah. player playing the lead in a movie yeah good point and that yeah. doesn't really happen and you get to see a kind of performance that we never get to see because he's great in this yeah. part True. And then we have a moment between another kind of into soft focus, the same sort of trick we did before of Abigail and John speaking to each other in this soft focus and singing to each other. Because he's lonely. He yeah. says that I'm lonely because Ben, Ben turns him down because in this rare moment of um, desperation from John Adams to have company, which we rarely see, it's a kind of a, a, a lowering of the guard a little bit. It was like, well, what are you doing? John is alone. And you have yeah. Abigail. And she says, as long as you were sending for wives, why didn't you send for me? It's a damn good question. Oh, now don't be unreasonable, Abigail. Oh, now I'm unreasonable. You must add that to your List? List? catalog of my faults you included in your last letter. Oh, they were fondly intended, madam. That I play at cards badly? A compliment. That my posture is crooked? An endearment. That I read and write and think too much? An irony. That I'm pigeon-toed? Oh, well, now there you have me, Abby. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't like this song that much. Oh, uh, this, is, this uh, is one that doesn't. It's do it for Abigail's me. song, uh, but yes, it's a. I, it's not one of my favorites of the musical for sure. Yeah, yeah, um, but it has very much the same structure. We are far away from each other through the soft focus. We come together, kind of walking in a field together. It's very romantic. They're side by side, and then as the song ends again with the salt peter, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. we we separate them back out. Yeah. And now it's the next day, and John is waiting on the steps of Thomas Jefferson's place, and Franklin comes up, and then the window opens, and there is Martha Jefferson looking beautiful in the window. And I'm going to just say, there is a lot of dirty old man stuff that's basically <laughs> the structure of what's going to go on next. But she, yeah, but she calls them out on it initially, right? Like she says, a man of your age is, it's unseeming. 
Yeah. What, what, what happens at first is they say good morning to her because yeah. they met her the, the day before. And she's like, is it usual for strange men in Philadelphia to say hello to women they don't know? And then when she finds out that this is, in fact, Ben Franklin and John Adams, she goes, oh, my God. I, um, while they're waiting for her to come down, um, we're talking about what will people think. And Ben Franklin says, don't worry, John, the history books will clean it up. Well, it doesn't matter. I'll not appear in the history books anyway. Only you. Franklin did this, and Franklin did that, and Franklin did some other damn thing. Franklin smoked the ground, and out sprang George Washington, fully grown and on his horse. Franklin then electrified him with his miraculous lightning rod, and the three of them, Franklin, Washington, and the horse, conducted the entire revolution all by themselves. I like it. Well, I like it. I like it. Yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> and she comes down to talk to them. Adams is clumsy. Yeah, there's an incredibly awkward moment where John says, <laughs> how did you sleep? Yeah. <laughs> and Franklin's like, uh, uh. I love Howard DeSilva going, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then what's the other one he says? Well, I mean, uh, did you lie comfortably? Well, but that's an interesting window into what you just talked about, this idea that for Franklin, this kind of stuff was effortless. For Adams, yeah. it required an incredible amount of effort because once again like you said when we talked about the first part he is not a natural politician he's not a natural uh, he's a natural leader but not necessarily a natural so for him everything is very important because what he think because everything because the, the country depends on it the 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 survival of the country the existence of the country depends on what he's doing so to have someone who comes along and is so effortless in what he's doing and gets to indulge his tastes and gets to indulge the, the, I don't know, the more nefarious parts of himself. And the fact that he's so eloquent just casually must frustrate the living hell out of John Adams because nothing of that looks to be hard fought or hard won. It's just so natural. Well, this is, you, we said at the beginning, you said that you relate to John Adams and that in yeah. our, uh, production of this musical which we're doing at some point that while you play john adams you were kind enough to offer me the role of ben franklin yeah i don't feel like ben franklin at all i feel that's like fair. i feel like john adams that's i feel fair. like vogel is franklin vogel is Frank. I'm gonna vogel say the same thing i mean vogel is franklin yeah it's just effortless he just walks <laughs> in and, and says the charming thing and i'm sitting here with notes and <laughs> working trying to make everything perfect <laughs> a good yeah point. Franklin's are irritating people. I understand why John Adams is irritated with him. <laughs> and they're talking to Martha, and she and we subject comes up that Thomas Jefferson doesn't say a lot. Oh, he never speaks his passions. He never speaks his views. Whereas all the men speak volumes, the man I love is mute. Oh, don't stop that. Don't tell us. How did he win you? He plays the violin. He tucks it right under his chin. And he bows, oh, he bows. For he knows, yes, he knows, that it's high, 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 diddle, diddle, twixt my heart, Tom and his fiddle, my strings are unstrung. Which I think is one of the most charming songs in the musical. It's very sweet. 
all three of them indulging in this song and then dancing with her. And the difference is, right, Ben is, once again, Ben very effortless and organic in the dancing with her. John Adams a bit more proper, a bit more structured, regimented. So both the dances conveying the personalities of Adams and Franklin. I totally agree. And I like this song too. And I think, first of all, you know, we talked about it in the first part of the somewhat hinting at sexual things, but not going directly at it. And this song is the ultimate example. Yeah. Just the way she says, he plays the violin, he tucks it right under his chin and he bows. Oh, he bows for he knows. Yes, he knows. And I'm, you know, I'm like, well, what are we talking about here? And you could see our two older gentlemen being very taken with this yeah. lady. Sure, sure. And it is a flirtatious and lovely scene. And I think that maybe the moment that you're alluding to that's so great yeah. is that first Ben dances with her. Yeah. And then, and they dance around and it's very fun and playful. And then there's this moment where she turns to dance with John Adams yeah. and he nervously and somewhat sheepishly yeah. steps forward. Yeah. And you have this moment of, oh, does John Adams know how to dance? And what happens is first he dances slowly and formally. Yeah. John, you can dance. We still do a few things in Boston, Franklin. And then he's taken over in the moment, and he goes into this beautiful, flowing, turning waltz that's just joyful. And it's a really fun moment in the movie. And then, and then who shows up? But there is Thomas Jefferson, um, who drops a page down to him. And John Adams catches it, which, by the way, I go like, how many takes did that take? <laughs> Paper right. does not fly straight. Nope. You can't quite predict where it goes. And he catches it just right. And the note that Jefferson has written is not, we hold these truths to be self-evident. No. But instead says, Dear Mr. Adams, I am taking my wife back to bed. Kindly go away, your obedient T. Jefferson. Incredible. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we get another uh, um, Ben Franklin line. You know, perhaps I should have written the declaration after all. At my age, there's little doubt the pen is mightier than the sword. <laughs> a funny little moment for sure and we end our song and now we're back at independence hall Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of stuff that's going on there's card playing people are complaining about the heat there's committee work being discussed the camera is a big 360 degree camera move and this scene was cut out of the movie this was added back into the director's cut yeah yeah yeah. and you know what i agree uh it should have been cut out Cut out, yeah. Yeah, is this the cool, considerate men? Or we'll, no, 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 we're, we're not hopes. there yet. Okay, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. Because that was also cut out of the yes. movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, we'll definitely get to that. Um, no, and, and what, what I would say one of the hardest things to do in art is to convey boringness without being boring. Mm-hmm. You know, so so what this scene is about is we're not really, a con- nothing important is happening here. Yeah. And sometimes you have to say that, but you don't want the audience to experience the this is not important. Right. You want them to understand that, but not experience it. And this is one where I kind of went, no, nothing's really happening here. All right, Franklin, enough socializing. There's work to be done. Good morning, John. What? Good morning. Oh, good morning, good morning. Now then, let's get to it. Get to what? Unanimity, of course. Look at that board. Six nays to win over in little more than a week. And they ask about Caesar Rodney. He's the older gentleman who had to leave because he was so ill. Right. Uh, and we find out that he is that he is head home. And we're asking about some of the other people like Maryland and Pennsylvania and the South. And wh- how are we going to get them? And we need to get them one foot in front of the other. Yeah. <laughs> and there's even a moment where Franklin says, I believe I put it a better way. Never leave off until tomorrow. Oh, that would you possibly. Franklin. 
<laughs> this whole sequence of them going to each different person to Pennsylvania, to the Deep South, to Maryland, to try to persuade each of them is actually all one shot, including these whip pans. Um, so wow. it's, you know, okay. it, it, there's a lot of wonders in this movie yeah. that are subtle. Um, and this is one of them. And, and part of this is you got you have guys that did this play on Broadway for a year. Yep. So they know how to do it. Yeah. Good point. And he's saying, look, Franklin, you got to go work on Pennsylvania. And Franklin goes, well, what good is that if you don't get the South? Right. And it's like, look, you worry about your problems. So Adams goes over to Chase, who's the representative from Maryland. And remember, he is the guy who said, I'd be for independence if I thought we could win. Right. And Chase is eating some food, which Adams, I think, picks some food off his plate. <laughs> yes, yes. And as he's trying to convince the representative from Maryland that this war is w winnable, he's, he goes off on how incredible the army is. He says, Why, as chairman of the war committee, I can state for a fact that the army has never been in better shape. Never have troops been more cheerful. Never have soldiers been more resolute. Never have training and discipline been more spirited. And at that moment, he mocks this soldier messenger. <laughs> <laughs> and Adams goes, oh, God. <laughs> and we oh, hear another God. terribly depressing dispatch from Washington. Uh, you know, about he talks about the utmost despair and disorder and confusion. And even that every able-bodied whore in the colonies have assembled in New Brunswick. There's an epidemic of the French disease. Do you know that, which of course is a venereal disease, probably syphilis, right. and that, that the English called it the French disease, the French called it the English disease, the Germans called it the Spanish disease. Of course, of <laughs> yeah. course. Well, Mr. Adams, you're a chairman of the war committee. Do you feel up to whoring, drinking, deserting, and New Brunswick? <laughs> and I love, I love his, uh, the senator from, was it? Uh, New Jersey is like, uh, there must be some mistake. Uh, my, I, ha I have an aunt in New Brunswick and they just lose it. So it's very well, they say you must tell her to keep up the good work, <laughs> yeah. which is so terrible. Um, <laughs> and Adams asked Chase, if you thought we could beat the Redcoats, would Maryland say yay to independence? Well, I suppose. No supposing. Would you or wouldn't you? Very well, Mr. Adams. Yes, we would. Then come with me to New Brunswick and see for yourself. That's, which I get, like, you know, John's got to put his money where his mouth is at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and I like to say, wake up, Franklin, we're going to New Brunswick. Like hell I am, what for? The whoring and the drinking. By the way, in early versions of the play, they went to New Brunswick. Oh, wow. So and there was a whole scenes yeah. where they're in New Brunswick. With prostitutes, and there was a whole song. Oh, <laughs> It's, it's a long play. And, and, and what they said is that it was really cutting that that made the play start to hit its rhythm. That's when they started to figure out what, what it really was. That makes sense. Yeah. And then Dickinson, our representative from Pennsylvania, is left alone. And we hear the bell toll. And then he goes into a song. Oh, say, do you see what I see? Congress sitting here in sweet serenity. I could cheer the reasons clear. For the first time in a year, Adams isn't here. And this song is Cool, Considerate Men. Yeah. They cut this one from the film, and rightly so. I think it's a terrible song. Um, I think the sequence is weird. It's weird. Um, and it is blatantly political. Very much we're, so. Right? Where at this point, we've seen 
because there's not another song where they go let's turn to the left you know there's it's just very political about the republicans and about the right about the conservative and remember this is what 72 nixon watergate's around this time uh we see so much going on in the country at this time so was this a shot hollywood shot so to me, I like that they cut it out because it starts to make the play f- or the musical feel like it's leaning too much towards one side. And one of the things I enjoy about this film is what Ben Franklin says way later in the movie when he says, you may not like it, but these are proud men, the cream of their colonies. You may not like this, but we're going to have to learn to be Americans with them and include them. Whether you like that logic or not, it is a logic that bears weight. And so uh, to me, this moment makes the film tip too far towards one side. And I never like a film that tips too far to one side politically or another. I like it when it's down the middle. Like The Contender is too much a liberal film for me. Uh, what's Alliance for Lambs? I just, anything that's too far right or too far left, I just don't uh, think is, is a good thing to do. The way I feel is that when the political point of the filmmakers eclipses the story, we're in trouble. Yeah, good point. You know, it's like there's some movies, like Grapes of Wrath is a liberal movie. Right. But that's not its point. That's the story it's telling. It's telling about poor people being abused by the system. And it stays true to that story. Yes, it doesn't right. try to sell you on a political point of view. It's telling right. a story. Right. Um, you know who you have to thank for cutting this uh, song out of the movie? Uh, Wait, uh, William Daniels. Richard Milhouse Nixon. <laughs> really? Jack Nixon. Warner Jack Warner took a print. They finished the movie. Yeah. The movie is cut. They're starting to strike prints for the release, and Jack Warner takes a print to the White House, shows it to Nixon. Nixon says, it's a great movie. I hate that song. You have to cut it. Jack Warner says, okay. Not only does he tell them to cut it, but he tells them, and this is the movie's already finished, so they have to yeah. take the movie back apart. It costs a lot of money to do this. He says, cut it out and burn every copy of that negative. Wow. And it's only, and had this been Warner brothers and Jack Warner, the head of the studio, well, that's what would have happened. Right. But instead what happened, cause it's Columbia. They said, well, we're not really going to do that. <laughs> put it to their storage facility, which by the way, is an, an abandoned salt mine. And the reason film is sto- stored in a salt mine is there's zero humidity because film is really fragile. Come, ye cool, cool, considerate set. We'll dance together to the same minuet. To the right, ever to the right, never to the left, forever to the right. Let our creed be never to exceed regulated speed. No matter what the need. A couple other things about this song, because I agree with you. The first thing is it's anachronistic because they keep talking about always to the right, never to yeah, the left. Never to well, the left. right and left in terms of conservative and liberal come from the French Revolution, which is 10, 12 years down the line. Oh, good so, point. So, so these phrases, did, but which is fine. I mean, there's lots of anachronism. You can get away things. with it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the real reason, but and the other thing is it's not historically accurate. So... Dickinson, the main representative from Pennsylvania, his objections to um, revolution had nothing to do with money. Yeah. That he was a former Quaker and he was very, very concerned about the potential for another British Civil War, that this revolution would tear England apart and that there would be another war like under Cromwell. Hmm. And, and as his Quaker background is, he really didn't want there to be war. And so his motivations are much stronger, I think, in reality than what this part, they make this person a bad guy. And in making him a bad guy, they go, oh, these are the rich people. And I don't think it's, 
I think it's really unfair because what is New England uh, rebelling against? Taxes. Yeah. Right. You know, these are the, the big traders, the big businessmen, manufacturers. They're in, they're in the north, yeah. in the northeast. And so to characterize Pennsylvania as, oh, well, that's really the rich people are, um, is really unfair. And so, yeah, I agree. And, and the song, by the way, as you say, it's weird. It's a weird song. It's not a good song. If it was a yeah. good song, I'd see the anger overcutting it. But yeah. yeah. And, they, and they even march out soaring to doing like a German goose step. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, when they're doing the minuet in the Congress, I'm like, this is, what is this? It's, yeah. This is not, it doesn't fit the movie at all. Yeah, it, it, it's very, very strange. Yeah. Well, it, and it does exactly what you said. So these are the bad guys. Rich people are bad. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah, true. Oh, one other thing about uh, Mr. Nixon. The whole cast went to the White House. Howard De Silva, who plays Ben Franklin, was a blacklisted actor. He blamed Nixon for the destruction of his career. Wow. And he felt so dirty by having to go to Nixon's White House and shake this guy's hand that what he did right after leaving the White House is he joined a Vietnam War protest in order to cleanse himself. Wow. So he was good on the movie. The second he met Nixon, he's like, I, I have to go out and back. Well, I, I, I think he was a man of age, too. He was, he was good not... meeting Nixon, though. I mean, like, yeah, he, he kept was, it yeah. together at the White House. Yeah, yeah. And, and now this sequence is very strange, which is we're left alone. All of our main characters have gone. We're with McNair, who is the, the guy who's sort of the working guy who runs the Congress. Yeah, um, yeah. And in comes this soldier who we've seen over and over and over again delivering these messages. And we're going to have a scene with him. My friend, this is my favorite scene of the movie um, for so many reasons. But I know you're going to get into it. I just wanted to let you know. I was certain that it was. I knew as I saw it that this is, and it's tonally, it's completely different. Yep. They ask him if he's seen the war and he was at Lexington Concord and he saw two of his friends killed. And their mother, one mother found the body right away and the other one had to try to find the other. And then we go into a song, which is about the plight of the soldier. That you I'm hearing in the tall grass nearby. Mama, come find me before I do die. Hey, hey, Mama, look sharp. Yeah, Steve, this was my audition song for quite mm. some time. Uh, for musicals because it's such a tender song it's such a beautiful song and it builds slowly um and i don't know man even before you know even before i served i I think i'd seen this movie before i got in the military and then after i saw the after i was in the military this song carried so much resonance and especially when you watch the civil war uh, and I know this is a, the Revolutionary War or whatever, but like when you watch the Civil War and you see and hear those letters and hear those memories that men had of watching other men crawl across the battlefield, crying into the night from the pain of being shot, bleeding out onto the battlefield, this is what this song is. And, you know, for all the everybody dancing around and doing whatever and singing their music and hanging out with Martha Jefferson and wearing their nice clothes and whatever – it's these guys that are going to go out there and fight the battle so those guys can have a country. And yes, the guys who are fighting the battle will have a country as well, but they're the lives that are being sacrificed on that battlefield. And this musical needed a moment to recognize those men 
who are going out there to die, like always, going out there to die for the Congress. And I think there's a line there that says that. I think McNair says that. You know, they all vote, but it's not them going out there. It's yeah. you guys. Uh, out of Why? Because McNair is a working class guy as well. He connects with the soldiers because it is usually the working class, the lower class, sure. uh, lower income uh, people who end up choosing the military as a po- as a way out of their situation. Um, you know, it's a guaranteed job. If you stay in and keep your, uh, you know, keep yourself clean, you can do it 20 years and get a pension. A lot of people go in because they have no other job opportunities in their lives. And so you see that. And so, but sometimes a war breaks out and their lives are sacrificed in that effort, you know? And so this song just kind of carries so much. I never not cry. Never not cry. There's just something about what I close your eyes, my Billy, those eyes that cannot see. And I'll bury my Billy beneath the maple tree. And never hearing the mother singing to the to the, the the dead body of her child it's just oh man it's just heartbreaking and i love it and the way they shoot it i mean all credit to the director the way they shoot it in black with the slight spotlight on each one as they sing and it's it's shot very much like you would see it in a in a stage play yet it does work cinematically for the effect you want from that song i agree with everything you say but i have a hard time with it and this is why oh okay i i I, I think it's great. I think I think it's moving. I like I like the way it's shot. This musical gives me a bit of whiplash, you know. Oh, where we going this, to what now? It's just stylistically a little bit all over the place. Okay, and 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 the light songs are so light. Yes. You know, the Lees of Virginia and the one about writing the Declaration of Independence, and he plays the violin. Mm-hmm. And we're in these very light, romantic, classic musical theater things. Right. And now we have this character who we've seen but never met, who right. has nothing to do with the rest of the show, come in and give this really powerful and heavy and moving song. And I'm just kind of, it's just weird for me. It's wow. not, it's really? not bad. Okay. I, like, and I'm moved too. I find it to be yeah. a very moving song. But it's sort of, and particularly coming after Cool, Cool, Considerate Men, which yeah. is a really strange song. Right. And, and, and the thing, too, is I've lost the thread a little bit with Adams, who's the main character. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so it's not a criticism of the song and certainly not of the performance of the way it's shot. It's just, yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is a weird musical. And we go to the thing that I said at the very beginning of, like, had I seen this in high school, yeah, I know I would have loved it. I would have had the album. I would listen to it over yeah. and over again, as I did with Guys and Dolls and My Fair Lady and all these musicals that I love. Yeah. Um, but watching it now, I have a different sort of reaction. I, I think without this song, in my opinion, and, and I respect your uh, obviously your point of view, Steve. But without this song and the and Dickens, uh, not Dick, uh, uh, Rutledge's song later about mm-hmm. the slaves, this musical doesn't have the weight it needs to have. Agreed. I it's totally a, agree. It's, it's a light musical about the signing. Of the, and it would have been, I think in my mind, it wouldn't have been revered as it is. Uh, it's, it's rare. Uh, in film musicals, it was rare. I know in stage musicals, it wasn't. But in film musicals, it was rare to have these like dark songs in musicals. And so uh, like, it's all old school. 
Yeah, yeah. like it's always fair weather is one of those ones that people forget about Gene Kelly uh, in right. his musical oeuvre. It's one of the most bitter musicals you'll ever watch. Also having to deal with soldiers coming back from the war and how that changes you 10 years later. And so this, I love this. I, I hear what you're saying. If you watch it without the, if you watch the original cut, it doesn't get ruined. It's in the rhythm of the movie, but that cool considerate men thing throws it off. That's the song that, that they rightfully jettisoned. This song flows because we've had him introduced walking and in, bringing right. in the missives from George Washington. So giving him his solo, I think works like later, like when we have that solo with the gentleman who reads the letters from Washington, he gets a moment to shine as well. So I think it works when you take out the cool, considerate men song. That's an interesting point. So, so I might've mentioned before, I had a teacher in film school who's Chuck Rosen and he was the mm. showrunner on Beverly Hills 90210 during the heyday. Right. And he was a writing teacher of mine. Uh, and he said, one of the great things he said, he said, is if you're having problems with a scene in writing it, the problem probably isn't the scene. The problem is the scene before is that you huh. haven't set it up right. And that if you set it up right, then it's better. And I, that's kind of how I feel in this is I think you're, I think you're right. If we had taken out cool, cool, considerate men, then I would respond better to the song. It's just, it's not that I don't think it's great. I do. I just, it's weird, you know, <laughs> in terms of how the movie is structured. It's also why I always fast forward. I saw it once. I saw it once. Mm. Cool, considerate men. And I have never watched that number again. I always fast forward as soon as that scene starts to get to the scene with this uh, with this soldier. Well, you heard it here first, cinephiles. You could skip it. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, and, and yet I will say, don't skip it because you need to look at it because this is cinephiles. You need to, to, sometimes you have to understand why something doesn't work. Yeah, true. You know? Very, very um, true. We've arrived at the reading of the Declaration of Independence and we're in a very wide shot. It's very painterly and we hear we hold these truths to be self-evident. And Jefferson is kind of in the back listening. And I have a thing I would like to talk about. Okay. It's a thing that I have thought about for years and never had a venue to discuss. Oh, and I right. feel that I finally have a time where I can say it. Um, and that is that I think the, this most famous sentence of the Declaration of Independence is one of the most interesting bits of writing ever. And that there is something about it that teaches us something about very about writing, particularly political writing, that's very important, which is this does not mean what we all think it means. Mm. And here's, I'm first I'm going to read the sentence. Everyone's heard this before. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to cinephile this sentence. All right. We're going to go deep into it for a moment. So the first part of it, we hold these truths to be self-evident. What does self-evident mean? Mm. Obvious. Obvious. So we're saying there are these truths out there and they're obvious. Mm -hmm. So obvious says everybody knows this. Yeah. Did everybody in 1776 know these truths? I don't know, but no. they were presented the, as possible. Yes. They're yeah. saying it's obvious. Yeah. But no one said this before. In fact, the idea that people are endowed with unalienable rights, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, this is a new idea. Mm -hmm. So it's not obvious. If it was obvious, everyone would be doing it. The right. history of the world, there would always be this idea. It is not self-evident. It's the farthest thing from self-evident. What they're actually saying is this should be self-evident. Right. Th this is an important rhetorical technique 
to state as obvious a thing which I want you to start thinking of as a truth. <laughs> as an obvious truth. But it yeah. isn't. Let's move on. Um, that all men are created equal. Okay. Is that, first of all, obviously not self-evident in any way in the history. Yeah. This is not self-evident. And what do we mean by created equal? How do we define that? Are they all people are exactly the same? No, no one thinks that. Are they all born with the same uh, privileges? No, no one thinks that. What does it mean to be created equal? Again, this is a radical idea. So it's a socialist idea that all of us are created equal. Well, this is one of the great debates is that, well, does that mean we should all have the same stuff? Right. And in no. fact, yeah. And it's like, I take it to be that there should be some equality of treatment by the government and equality of opportunity. Hmm. But it's a vague phrase. So now we've said that there's this thing that's self-evident, everyone should know this, mm -hmm. that's never really been considered as part of the world that I'm now putting out there. And then the next thing I say, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Right. What does unalienable mean? Well, uh, Adams is going to speak to the printer about that. But yeah, I know. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, unalienable or inalienable has always meant to me, um, can't be touched. Right. Can't be changed, can't be hindered in any way. So the creator, God, or whatever we're going to say that yes. is, has, has said, has made it so that we have rights that cannot be taken away. Right. Have these rights in the history of the world been taken away? Uh, well, yes. Constantly. Right. If the, if the rights hadn't been taken away, we would have no need to have this revolution in the first place. Sure. The whole point of the revolution is that you have taken away these rights. But yep. I'm saying these rights are unalienable. Again, it's a rhetorical ploy. What I'm actually saying is it should be obvious that yep. you shouldn't take away these rights. Right. Right. And then we say what the rights are, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Obviously, life the right to life has been taken away over and over again. Liberty has been taken away over and over again. Yep. People have been prevented from having the pursuit of happiness. All of these are alienable rights. Yep. And then the last thing, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Now we're saying it's obvious that the purpose of government is mm -hmm. to secure these rights that we've never really even talked about before. Yeah. And so what we're saying, and that's why I think this is such an amazing sentence, is that what it sounds like we're saying is, here's a bunch of obvious truths. None of the truths are obvious. We are actually saying, this is what I believe that you should believe. Yes. And we're framing everything in this Declaration of Independence based on this sentence that is completely unique in writing. Yeah. Yep. That is this me cinephiling one, one <laughs> sentence. Totally respect that, man. Totally yeah. respect. Um, I think it's a remarkable piece of writing. And, yep. and, and, and just the one last thing I'll say is that frequently, particularly in political speech, we are not saying what we think we're saying. Mm -hmm. Or or we are not saying what you think we're saying mm -hmm. because we are trying to persuade. We're trying to shift your mind in some way. And this sentence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, is an incredibly powerful shifting of your mind. Yeah. All right. Back to Congress. Maryland has been impressed <laughs> with what happened. And it's, it, am I understanding it correctly? He just saw the soldiers shoot a bunch of geese? Yeah. He saw them mobilize and come together in perfect formation uh, and shoot a bunch of geese. So if it's possible for them to do that, then they might really have a shot against the British Army. I think that's so lame. <laughs> well, Steve. I'm, I mean, it's just so like... How, how, I mean, Samuel, how, was it difficult to impress Samuel Chase? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, he, was, he was a young man, and he was for revolution the whole time. 
So there you go. Oh, so then it was. So this was just added for the. Yeah. What I don't like about it is that he set up probably the best objection to uh, to independence of anybody. Right. Look, I want it. I don't think we can win. This is the most powerful army in the world. Yeah. And everything Washington's saying is we're fucked. Yeah. Is that if he had gone up and met with George Washington and come back and said, I believe. Yeah. Or gone up and seen them do something, you know, which they were doing. They did do impressive things at this time. Why have it be a silly thing? Why have it be a joke? I don't understand. Like, I, really? I, I, I've yeah. never taken it that way. It was, um, because Chase is presented as not the most mm. intelligent guy, certainly given into his gluttonous uh, desires, which, of course, in 2020, you wouldn't shoot it that way. But he is given into it because John Adams makes a couple of comments about his size and about his desire to eat all the time. Sure. Uh, he says stuffing his face. So he's presented as a bit of a comical character, a simple character. Yeah. So even though he has that great line where he says, like, you know, the Britain, the face it, face facts, John, the British are just too powerful. Um, him seeing this situation, uh, because of the way it's been presented, that they're both going to go and that maybe John Adams will change his mind. Uh, we see him, like, be impressed by the fact that these guys can get together and shoot a flock of geese. Maybe they can shoot a bunch of British soldiers. It does. It's not necessarily that far out of the realm of possibility because of the way they've presented the character and the way that actor has portrayed the character. Well, and you who have seen it many, many times, it's yeah, never yeah. hit you, and so nope. it's working for you. Not so, once. you know, for me who see, seen it the first time, I'm like, ah, oh, I bet they could have done something better. That's for fair. me. Totally um, fair. John Adams sees Jefferson, who's anxiously listening to them read the Declaration, and he says, "Nothing to fear. It's a masterpiece. I'm to be congratulated. <laughs> you for making him write it." <laughs> <laughs> and then we go into the song, The Egg. Oh, this is a great song. For us I see immortality in Philadelphia City. A farmer, a lawyer, and a sage. A bit gouty in the leg. You know, it's quite bizarre to think that here we are playing midwives to an egg. Egg. What egg? America, the birth of a new nation. It's fun. It's very fun. But th this to me is more like all the other songs than Mama Look Sharp. You know, mm. this is very much yeah. the we're in the fun light musical thing. Yeah. And it's cute and it's syncopated. You know, they have this sort of syncopated rhythm as the three guys, Jefferson, Franklin, and Adams sit together yeah. and talking about the birth of the nation through the egg. We're waiting for the chirp. We're waiting for the chirp. Chirp. Chirp of an eaglet being born, waiting for the chirp, chirp, chirp on this humid Monday morning in this congressional incubator. God knows the temperature's hot enough to hatch a stone, let alone an egg. And I love the argument about what bird's gonna come out of there. <laughs> the turkey. The turkey is a truly noble bird, Native American, source of sustenance of our original settlers, an incredibly brave fellow who will not flinch at attacking a regiment of Englishmen, single-handedly. Therefore, the national bird of America is going to be... The eagle. <laughs> Which, by the way, Franklin really wanted the yes. national bird to be a turkey. He did, he did. And Jefferson wanted the dove, and it's Adams who wanted the eagle. Of course, that's very perfect. He even looks like an eagle at times, mm. the way they have his hair pulled back and his nose prominently displayed. But as you listen to the song, you know, it's Jefferson who's a bit insecure about the situation, mm -hmm. Adams who is more secure about what's going on, and Franklin who gets kind of swept up 
in both of these gentlemen uh, yeah. in what they're singing about. Yeah. I and mean, I, I like the song. I think it's, sweet. I, I think it's a very fun song. I like what uh, uh, Franklin says about the eagle. He says the eagle is a scavenger, a thief, and a coward, the symbol of 10 centuries of European mischief. How much do you think he enjoyed saying that as you just told us the story about him going and joining a Nixon protest? Maybe that's him adding that. Maybe. Because that is, in, a, in essence, a shot at America and our colonialism and our history of how we've treated other people who had lands before us that we took, right? I mean, that's that's a thing. If you look at this, this is kind of a subtle shot at America by taking the shot at the eagle. Mm-hmm. And what food do we eat on Thanksgiving Day? The turkey, and the turkey is the one that's a noble warrior. It's a, it's fought for them, but that's the one we sacrifice for, to fill ourselves. So there's a, there could be subtle things going on here in this scene, subtle little shots that you might not you might miss. Well, hundred percent, and and the turkey is a native American bird, and what yeah. Franklin describes that we discussed in the previous episode yeah. is that Americans are a new species, right? They're different from what came from the old country. Mm-hmm. You know, they're tougher, they're scrappier, they're more violent, more aggressive, more plain spoken. We're a bunch of turkeys, John. <laughs> I don't know. Jefferson thought we were a bunch, we could be a bunch of doves, but that's the aspirational nature of Jefferson for sure. And just as Tom here has written, we say to hell with Great Britain, the eagle inside belongs to us. And as they finish the song with a big sort of finale that's a lot of fun, we hear the end of the Declaration of Independence. And for the support of this declaration, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And now the question is, does anyone want to add amendments, deletions, or corrections? This is, this is an incredible sequence of events. Well, yeah. Adams thought they wouldn't change a word. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. There's all sorts of stuff from from the mentions of how the Scottish mercenaries are portrayed. There's no mention of divine providence. We talk about trial by jury and some colonies have it and some don't. Deep sea fishing rights, Steve. Deep sea fishing rights, damn it. Deep sea fishing rights. (laughs) Um, Well, and, you know, this is is completely believable. Yeah. Yeah. And Jefferson sits quietly and goes, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and there's a whole, and a lot of these are these are correct. You know, talking about not wanting to attack the British people, not wanting to attack the British Parliament, and Adams is getting angrier and angrier because he thought it was perfect. And I like what he says uh, here because he goes, "It's a revolution, damn it! We're going to have to piss off somebody." In essence, <laughs> is what he's saying, and I love that. We're going to have yeah. to fend somebody, rather. Yeah. Have you heard what they're doing to it? Have you heard? I heard. And so far, that's just our friends. Can you imagine what our enemies will do? And that's what we're about to get to. Uh, The first one is Dickinson from Pennsylvania, who objects to the fact that King George is referred to as a tyrant. Because he is a tyrant. Finally, there is one line that he will not cross or have crossed out. When a king becomes a tyrant, he thereby breaks the contract binding his subjects to him. There are a bunch of things that lead to the Declaration of Independence. One of the most important foundational works is John Locke. And John Locke says that all governments earn their... Uh, power from the consent of the governed, which yeah. again is a revolutionary idea. It's logically true, but, but no one no because well, of course it is. But yeah. but before that, most rulers ruled by divine right. Yeah, 
They ruled because God said they should rule. And this is a different idea. No, that's that line in that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That connects to John Locke. It also connects to John Stuart Mill. Rights that came from him in the first place? All except one. The right to be free comes from nature. Again, this relates to the first line of the Declaration of Independence. Right. It's also interesting that Jefferson was not religious. He was a deist. He actually wrote a version of the Bible that removed all magic and mentions of God. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so it's interesting that he says it comes, he didn't say it came from the creator. He said it came from nature. Yeah. It's a very interesting thing. The founding fathers were not unified at all in terms of religion. And are we not free, Mr. Jefferson? Homes entered without warrant, citizens arrested without charge, and in many places, free assembly itself denied. And Dickens's response is, these are dangerous times. That's why yeah. the Crown had to do it. And Franklin says, Those who give up some of their liberty in order to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And this is, of course, a real quote from Benjamin Franklin. That has come up uh, since Her- the Patriot Act. That has been something that has been echoed for quite some time in this country. And again, even more so nowadays. Uh, I, I heard it three days ago. You want to know in what context? Tell me. You can't force me to wear a mask. Yeah. Those who, those who would give up their liberty for a little <laughs> bit of safety. Yeah. Ridiculous. Well, but this is, the th- this is the thing, is that the idea that these are binary, how much liberty, how much safety? Right. right. I mean, we live in a world where we are more monitored than in any time in the history of the world. True. We, the, the, you know, it's like when, when John Adams was in his room with Abigail or, or Jefferson with Martha, nobody knew what they were doing. Right. Right. right now, someone knows what you and I are doing. We're on a Zoom call. Lord God. Yep. I mean, um, the, you know, we have so, we, we are monitored in so many ways. And so again, it's, well, how much liberty, how much safety? Yep. The world is also way more dangerous in the sense that there are nuclear bombs out there. True. You no, know, there are True. terrorists. There, there are things that have destructive power far beyond anything that they could have imagined in 1776. Well, yeah. yeah. How much liberty, how much safety? If you're listening to us, thanks for listening to Cinefiles. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what we recorded. I was on, uh, this is a, I'll make the digression really quick. When I was <laughs> okay. working with Hoover, we were trying to develop a documentary series about Afghanistan. Oh. And in doing so, we were talking to a lot of people, one of whom was a former member of the Taliban, who was part of the peace process. He's now part of the peace process in Oslo. He was a guy raised in a madrasa. He had no perspective of the world at all. And when he met Hoover, he really opened his eyes and he left the Taliban. Yeah. Um, but this is a really interesting guy. And we knew for a fact that he was on the FBI watch list. Huh. So we're, because we, because he, he was a former member of the Taliban who was right. in the United States, despite his politics, which were anti-Taliban. And um, so we started every call with, hello, we just want to say hello to the FBI. And this is what we're going to be talking about. We are talking about a movie that we're developing and we're talking about it in this way. And this is who I am. And if you have any other questions, you could just give us a call. Because <laughs> we knew we were being monitored. Right, right. You know, wow. There you are, Mr. Jefferson. Your declaration does not speak for us all. I demand the word tyrant be removed. Very well. Just a moment, Mr. Thompson. I do not consent. The king is a tyrant, whether we say so or not. We might as well say so. But I already scratched it out. Then scratch it back in. For three days, all of this goes on. There are 85 separate changes, 400 words. Now, would you whip it and beat it till you break its spirit? 
I tell you that document is a masterful expression of the American mind. And he goes, if there are no more changes, and then... Just a moment, Mr. President. Oh, man. I wonder if we might prevail upon Mr. Thompson to read again a small portion of Mr. Jefferson's declaration. The one beginning, he has waged cruel war. This is absolutely accurate. There was a clause in the Declaration of Independence known as the Slavery Clause. I will read some of it because I got it here. Here is, yep. here is some of it. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. Mm. And it goes on, and it is brutal. And it's yeah. about slavery, and it was written by Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. And this is now what we will discuss with Rutledge from South Carolina and the members of the Deep South. Yeah. And he says, I can't quite make out what it is you're talking about. Slavery, Mr. Rutledge. Oh, yes. You're referring to us as slaves of the king. No, sir. I'm referring to our slaves, black slaves. Why didn't you say so, sir? Were you trying to hide your meaning? No, sir. Just another literary license, then, if you like. I don't like at all. It is so, I mean, we talk, you know, Thomas Jefferson, we keep coming back to Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. This is a slave owner. Yes, which he gets called out on just mm -hmm. two lines later by Rutledge. And I'm more concerned with what is written in that little paper there. That little paper there deals with freedom for Americans. Mr. App is now calling our black slaves Americans. Are they not? Yes, they are. They're people and they're here. If there's any other requirement, I've never heard of it. They are here, yes, but they are not people, sir. They are property. No, sir. They are people who are being treated as property. I tell you, the rights of human nature are deeply wounded by this infamous practice. And see to your own wounds, Mr. Jefferson, for you are our practitioner. Are you not? I have already resolved to release my slaves. And we know, we know what Jefferson, you know, Sally Hemings, we know the story. We know all of that. And to be clear, he never did release his he slaves. He never did release his slaves, right? Exactly. And so Rutledge calling him out on it is a fair moment. As much as you may not like Rutledge, it is fair for him to call him out. And the way Rutledge walked him into that is just classic, uh, classic, uh, pretending not to understand in order to get the point across. And then it becomes this thing where Rutledge calls out the North. And when I love this for their hypocrisy. And this is important to me, Steve, because before, I, I want to stop you because yeah, I really want you to, I, I want you to go on that, but I want yeah, to just yeah. say one quick thing about Jefferson. Yeah. Um, of the four Mount Rushmore guys, Jefferson is my least favorite. Wow. I mean, it, it's not, it's not even close. And, while I just spent a lot of time praising the genius of his writing of the Declaration of Independence, he is in many ways a weak man. And he, throughout his history, continued to promise to free his slaves. And throughout his history, he continued to waste money, spend money, be almost going broke. And it always meant him sacrificing a little bit of himself in order to do what he knew to be right. And this document 
is evidence that even at the age of 33, he knew that this was the right thing to do. And he did not, he lacked the courage of conviction over and over and over again for the next 50 years. He dies 50 years from now. And so there are great accomplishments of Jefferson, most important being the Louisiana Purchase and obviously writing the Declaration of Independence. But I, yeah, I mean, there are other founding fathers who are slave owners, George Washington, and we should condemn that as well. Yeah. He did free his slaves. George Washington did. Um, Yeah. Jefferson's very problematic for me. Yeah, I agree. And that's the thing you got to look at here. And of course, we're not advocating you go tearing down the Jefferson Memorial or anything, but like that is absolutely a fair criticism of Jefferson to look at. He chose the status over what was right. And so how can you write a document like this? How can you include a clause like this and how can you have fought for a clause like this? And obviously, he doesn't. We're not saying that what happens in the movies actually happened in real life. But like, how can you have fought? I'm sure there were debates about this clause between Jefferson and, and, and Rutledge and others. Uh, how can you fight for this and yet still be so uh, unprincipled? And that's correct, unprincipled as to not follow your own words in how you do this and to put yourself in a position where. Um, you had to free yourself. Well, you made yourself free the slaves and said, I will find a way to survive some other way. Yeah. But bad decisions, bad money usage, all of that caused you because you always had that back. It's almost like a child that's never grown up. You know, yes. I, I, I have that backup plan if I need to. I may feel bad about it, but I'll get over it because I'll be able to maintain my status in society. And no one's going to call me out on it enough. No one's going to make it to the point where I feel completely guilty and have to get rid of my slaves. So it's a terrible situation. And I agree with you, Steve, it is a weakness. It is a weakness in him for as much as we love him and a founding father and all of that and and respect his intelligence and his writing. This is a massive black mark. This This isn't a small black mark. This is a massive black mark against a guy who otherwise would have been ultimately very, very revered by this country and by history. Uh, but seeing this is just like it's it's a t- very difficult thing to 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 consume. <sighs> yeah, and it's because he knew that's what's yes. the, it's right. this document right, right. here right. is that there we can say that there are people that were raised to believe horrible things about the African American slaves that they have in bondage, sure, and sure. that's terrible, and we would condemn it. But this guy knew that it was terrible. Yeah. And he didn't do it. And he just sat in his beautiful estate on Monticello with the largest library in the Western, you know, in the world, in America, and had all of his gadgets and his things. And he said, I can't give this up. Yeah. Right. Over and over and over again. I can't slim it down. Like you think about, you know, the end of Schindler's List, which will never cease to make me cry of why do I still have this watch? How can I have this car? This This could have saved a life. Yeah. It's like, yeah. how many books did he have to sell to free Sally Hemings? You know right. what I mean? Right. Like, right. that's that's where I just have no respect. And But of course, what we should say is that hypocrisy, Jefferson is not the owner of hypocrisy in the scene. But what's sure. going to happen is, and what Rutledge does is to spread that hypocrisy around. It is an offense against man and God. It's a stinking business, Mr. Rutledge, a stinking business. Is it really, Mr. Hopkins? Then what is that I smell? floating down from the north. Would that be the aroma of hypocrisy? For who holds the other end of that filthy first string, Mr. Adams? And this is what's important. And I love this song. As difficult as this song is, this song is what ultimately won me over about the movie, that they were willing to be honest about the slave trade, that it wasn't like, we're going to, you know, bash the South. 
No, Rutledge says, oh, no, no, no. We're both in this. We're both uh, 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 complicit in this practice because those ships go up to Boston and they bring the slaves down to the South. And that's how this whole thing works. And you all don't mind it because your economy relies on you doing these things, importing and exporting what you do. And that's how you're complicit in this slave trade because it's your ships up there in the north, the supposedly you know liberal north or non-slavery, non-slavery loving north who is complicit in all of this. And Steve, to me, this still echoes nowadays. When you see these supposed liberals being just as racist in a different way or lying to themselves that they're not as racist as other people they may see in different political spectrums, it frustrates the living shit out of me when I see that. The bias, the hypocrisy of it all, that stupid video where all those people are in black and white saying, you know, oh, I'll never laugh at a joke like that again. I'll call it out when I'm on set. I'll do this or that. And it's like, if this was about you, this isn't about the cause. This is about you self Self, uh, self whipping yourself uh, for something that you should have talked about or should have stood up for because just like Jefferson, you knew, you knew, and you didn't stand up for it. You knew because your career mattered more than making a stand. Your career mattered more than you speaking out about it, even though you knew it was wrong. So to now all of a sudden pledge that you won't do it anymore means nothing, means absolutely nothing. When it's, when it's finally popular to do something, it means it carries no weight. All these people that all of a sudden turned on Woody Allen because it became popular to do so over the last three or four years, I held no weight with their defiance. Absolutely zero. When it was difficult to do, that's when you should have done it. When it's hard to do, that's when it matters. When there's a real thing to lose and you still stand on principle, that's when it fucking matters. And so to me, that's the thing about this as I watch this Black Lives Matter. So what's it come? Like they're starting to come out statistics that it's majority white people that I just think, and a lot of uh, black organizers are starting to feel like they're using this as some kind of trend, some kind of social media thing, not a real commitment to being here for the actual struggle to change the system. And we'll see what bears out, but you're seeing that. And I'm seeing this, I see it in, in LA all the time. People under their breath say, uh, who, who is it that are moving out of those neighborhoods? It's those white, rich liberals that are moving out of those neighborhoods to go to other places because they don't want to be around people of color necessarily of lower class or, or lower economic station. So it's like it's a hypocrisy all around, which I, this is why I love this song, because it's like, yeah, this this idea that you own morality is a lie. Glasses to run to slurs. Oh, what a beautiful world. Dance with us, we dance with you in molasses and rum and slang. Who sail the ships out of Boston, laden with Bibles and rum? Who drinks a toast to the Ivory Coast? Hail Africa, the slavers have come. New England with Bibles and Rome. I think it's a really hard song. When I first saw it, it is I went, song. man, I don't know how I feel about it. Because it is, I mean, it's, it's, this is molasses to rum to slaves. And yeah. it's talking about these ships run by the people in the north that do this 
run, you know, where they take molasses from this part to this point mm -hmm. and rum, molasses becomes rum and all of this money shifts. And one part of that triangle is picking up slaves yeah. and bringing them through the middle passage to sell them on the block in the South. Look at the faces at the auctions, gentlemen. White faces on African wharves, seafaring faces, New England faces, put them in the ships, cram them in the ships, stop them in the ships. Hurry, gentlemen, let the auction begin. And to see this man, this white man dressed in finery, a man of the South, yeah. standing on the auction block as the lights have gone to amber and we hear the crack of the whip and the clink oh. of the chains and he's acting all of this out and says, you are complicit to the men of New England. Right. It is when I, like I said, when I first saw it, I went, oh, I don't know how I yeah. feel about this. And, and, and my, my thought is, well, do I not know how I feel about this? The way there are other things where we talk about, oh, that's dated and we wouldn't do it that way. And, and that's, you know, we don't look at, or do I not know how I feel about this? Because it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And in thinking about it a lot, I think, no, I think it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Yeah. It's supposed to make me feel uncomfortable. For the love of God, Mr. Rutledge, please. That moment uh, where the general stands up and says, Mr. For the love of God, Mr. Rutledge, please. That is such a moment because we're about to lose this musical. We're about to lose this moment into complete. We're about to. He's taking us. Rutledge is. He's descending into hell with us. He's taking us into hell with him. As you said, the amber and the red lights come through this moment, and he's doing the hiya, hiya, like all of that. You're just like, what the fuck is happening here? And he is dragging us into hell. And it is at that moment when he's losing himself, it's almost like he's delivering the devil's sermon here, and he uh, like a preacher for the devil. And in that moment, he has stopped from taking us all the way down into hell or the, in my opinion, you know, I know you're an atheist, but into the low. No, I regions. think that's exactly what's happening yeah, in the yeah. at this moment. And, and it's, so when he stopped, you're stopped. Cause you're, if you're transfixed by that song, you're just like, Oh my God, where are we going next? Because I can't take my eyes off this and my ears. I can't stop listening to this. And then he gets stopped and he brings it back. Well, well and th this moment of, for the love of God, Mr. Rutledge, oh. please, that is a moment of please stop forcing me to face my own hypocrisy, <laughs> Fair. you know? Well, and this Fair. is so, so here, let me, let me give you a little bit of statistics at this moment. Hmm. The first thing that's really important because we can't, because we think of the civil war, yeah. the North are against slavery. The South are for slavery. Slavery was legal in the North. Yep. At this time, one fifth of the population of the colonies at this time were slaves, people in bondage. More than half the delegates owned slaves, including not John Adams, but other ones from the North. Yep. It was a common practice in the North to have to either have slaves or hire slaves from someone else to work on your farm. Adams never did that. He refused to do that. The movement toward abolition did begin in the North, yep. but it took a long time. Here's a, in 1700, a Massachusetts judge named Sewell condemned slavery. He said that this is abomination and it is a catastrophe and it is a blight. So we go like, oh, this, this guy figured it out. Judge Sewell was the judge who oversaw the Salem witch trials. Wow. And the reason I wanted to bring that up, 
because it just struck me so powerfully is that there's no black and white here. Yeah. This is gray. Okay. And that's what this song is about. Yeah. Is that we want to cast people of, oh, these are the good guys. These are bad guys. It's not that easy. Yeah. Just like with Jefferson, just like with Washington, a lot, you know, half, more than half of these delegates own slaves. Mm-hmm. So we, do we say they're heroes or villains? And I'm like, no, this is complicated. Yeah. Um, you know, something that came up over and over again when we did the Civil War documentary is that we want to believe that the people on our side are not only morally right, right, they're competent, brave, that they have all the valor, all of the good qualities that we want. And when you look at the Civil War, man, that's not true. Right. Like there are characters who are the, some of the great soldiers in American history who are horrible people like yes. Nathan Bedford Forrest. And there are soldiers on the northern side whose morals we might like, but we're shitty soldiers. And there are other ones who are complete assholes like Phil Sheridan, who after being an incredible cavalry commander in the Civil War, went off to uh, fight the Indians Mm -hmm. with Custer under him. Was Terry said, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. This is, and, and you think too, again, we continue to cast the South is where it's racist today. Yeah. When Martin Luther King went to Chicago, he said he's found more racists in Chicago than he ever had in Alabama. <laughs> and, and if you read Isabel Wilkerson's incredible book, which is the, the Sons of Northern, ah, I just drew a blank on its name. It's the book okay. about the African-American migration to the North, out of the South and to the West. Okay. Okay. And, and what it's really about is they found all sorts of racism. But the hard thing was that the racism in the South was out front. It was obvious. Right. When you got to California or Detroit, well, it wasn't so obvious. You didn't know where you couldn't go. Right. You right. know? And so, so again, like we continue to cast this stuff as these are where the good guys are and these where the bad guys are. And what I like about this song and the moment in the show is like, no, yeah. we can't do that. That's not reality. Mr. Adams, I give you a toast. Hail Boston! Hail Charleston! Who stinker? The I love it. I love it. Once again, I love it. Like both the both the downer songs, the soldier song and the uh the this song, Molasses to Rum to Slaves is showing you the cost of this situation is showing you that the for all the highfalutin stuff and the funny little moments and the lighthearted humor and the the you know the oh these are the founding fathers uh there was real weight to what was happening there's real cost to what was uh, going down here and yeah. the some hard truths that were having to be faced and some reckonings that had to happen yeah and i and i think we've reached the low point in the film you yeah, know it's like absolutely. oh this is we, this is not gonna work and of yep. course that's when chase from maryland walks in saying hey i got it it's all what's the problem <laughs> once, once again he's played as kind of a buffoon a little bit at times yeah and adams being the tenacious guy he is he's like okay what are we sitting around for we need to go get caesar the guy, well, the old guy you missed the spot here steven we should okay. go uh, the the south walks out all in unison after which yes. is done they all walk out including um dr lyman from georgia from georgia adam stops for just a second and he does hesitate which is a great little seed mm-hmm. as steve talks m- many times in great films you have the seeds for what he's going to do later well what are we all sitting around for huh? we're wasting time precious time thomas i want you to ride down into delaware and fetch back caesar rodney john are you mad it's 80 miles and he's a dying man no he's a patriot oh john what good will it do the south's done us in and suppose they change their minds can we get delaware without rodney 
this is all forceful too. This is like, this is exactly what we've been pitched Sam Adams, or I mean, sorry, John Adams to be from the beginning. This is where he's obnoxious and dislike because he is gonna, he's gonna force yeah. you tough love to go make this stuff happen. And the thing is, is like, well, if we manage to somehow by some miracle get the South to come back and we don't have Caesar Rodney from Delaware, we're going to lose anyway. So we need him. And this is when Franklin comes up and says, the slavery clause has to go. Oh, man. Franklin, what are you saying? It's a luxury we can't afford. Oh, luxury, he says. Sitting up here with your clothes and your fineries and you say uh, the chain souls of 500,000 is a luxury. You forget yourself, sir. I founded the first anti-slavery society on this continent. Oh, don't wave your credentials at me. Perhaps it's time you had them renewed. And that was such a the, this, this slamming of of uh, these guys were friends. These guys have been friends the whole movie, Steve. Yep. And this is the moment where the reality of the cost of the sacrifice of making this nation uh, comes to bear. Two little bits of history. The first is that uh, Franklin did not found that abolition society until 1785. So it didn't exist, although he was against slavery. Yes. And Adams always knew the slavery clause was going to go. He was against oh. it. Yeah. yeah. Jefferson's one who wanted it. And Adams like, we'll never get it to stick. Wow. But, you know, we, it was funny. We just did an outlaw nation where we were talking and someone asked the question about historical accuracy in films. And I said, it depends on the movie. And that this is one where I think they made absolutely the right choice to change history here. Because mm-hmm. it brings the drama in exactly where you want to be, bring the drama. If Adams had yeah. said, well, I always know that's never going to work, then this wouldn't be a dramatic moment. Yeah. Is that in order to make us consider this moment about slavery and about the slavery clause, you need Adams to passionately want to keep it in. The issue here is independence. Perhaps you've forgotten that fact, but I have not. How dare you jeopardize our cause when we've come so far? These men no matter how much we may disagree with them, are not ribbon clerks to be ordered about. They're proud, accomplished men, the cream of their colonies. And whether you like it or not, they and the people they represent will be part of this new nation you'd hope to create. Now either learn how to live with them or pack up and go home. In any case, stop acting like a Boston fishwife. And that scene ends at a pretty, pretty dark moment. Yeah, yeah. Can I tell you the thought that I had well, at this moment of the film that I have never had before in my entire life. Mm-hmm. When I went to school, and you, I'm sure you were educated the same way, we were told a certain narrative about the history of America. Yep. And the narrative was based on the idea that America was a good. Right. That it was good that we made America. Right. And that Franklin, the name that I was taught about him is that he was the great compromiser. Right. That Franklin was the person who made both this deal happen and in the Constitution, he made two big compromises. The one compromise was between states' rights and popular federal rights. And so he is the one that created the way the split between the Senate and the House of Representatives work and the Electoral College so that less populous states wouldn't be overwhelmed by the more populous states. That's one of the compromises. Yeah. And the other great compromiser is that he is the guy that came up with slaves are three-fifths of a human. Mm. Wow. Yep. And And... What I was taught, the lesson I was taught was, we don't like that. It was bad. But right. if we hadn't done it, there'd be no America. And so it was good that we did it. Mm-hmm. Here's the thought that I had at this moment in the movie that I've never had before in my entire life. Right. Was it good? 
was it good that we have America? I think that's at the end of the day, the question that the musical can leave you with is like, was the sacrifice, like if you're a, if you're a uh, African-American person, a black person watching this movie, do you hate this moment? Do you hate this moment that these supposed men of principle uh, were willing to back down, were willing to accept this as, as the cost of creating a nation, which really, Steve, we're still fighting that battle. We are still in 2020 fighting the consequences of that decision in this country from the civil war to the civil rights uh, riots. Uh, by that, I mean the, uh, the way the, uh, the uh, hoses were turned on the civil rights protesters to uh, you know, what we see now in, in, in black lives matter, what we've seen multiple times in the systemic racism, as you pointed out on the outlaw nation show, the statistics of what we see, uh, how uh, disenfranchised uh, black people are in this country, African-American people are in this country. We are still paying for the consequences of that decision. The ramifications of that decision are still echoing throughout history. Let me throw throw this at you. So this is 1776. It is 89 more years after a very bloody civil war that the slaves are freed, 1865. Yeah. In England, the slaves were freed in 1807. That's 58 years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. If we hadn't had the Revolutionary War and declared independence, would we be Canada? That's a good point. I don't know. And, and, And it's so weird to me because my, like I said, my, I was raised that America is a good. Right. Full stop. Right. And even though we might be critical of things that America did, that as a whole, it was a good. And, and it was so weird. To ha- and I'm a patriot, as I know you are. Yes. I love the American story and always have and love American history and always have. And to have this moment at this time in 2020 while watching this musical where I went, wait a minute, what would we have been right. if they didn't make this deal? It would have essentially been two separate countries, which is what it sometimes feels like, to be honest with or, you. Or maybe England would have freed the slaves. And this, we wouldn't, who knows? I don't know what we yeah. would have been, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we wouldn't have gotten the Louisiana Purchase because they were at war with France. And that's why Napoleon needed the money to fight the English. You know, yeah. like there's a whole bunch of things like, well, then that wouldn't happen. Right. What would happen in World War II? Would there have been a Hitler? I don't, you know, of course we can't know. But right. just entertaining the idea that America as a whole might not have been a good was sh- shook me up. Yeah. Well, you know, what's great. It's because you live in America that you can have that thought. And that's express that true. thought in a podcast and not feel like they're going to come knocking on your door and put you in jail for it. That's the other side of it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Me too, then. <laughs> uh, and, uh, we want to thank the FBI for listening. This is what we're exactly. talking about. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and now we're up at the bell tower and we have the moment with Abigail. Uh, yes. And he's at his low point. Abigail, what am I going to do? You don't usually ask my advice. Yes, well, there doesn't appear to be anyone else right now. The entire South has just walked out of this Congress. George Washington is on the verge of total annihilation. And the precious cause for which I have labored these several years has come to nothing. And it seems that I'm obnoxious and disliked. <laughs> well, and this is what we do. We get, the, we get the mirror of the thing that he did to her, where she, she, there was the list of yes. her, her faults, and now we get the list of his faults that I'm unwilling to face reality. Foolishness, John. That I'm pig-headed. Oh, well, there you have me, John. 
I'm afraid you are, Pinkhead. <laughs> and Abigail essentially does the uh, Adrian from Rocky thing, which is that yeah. she gives him the key to fight. And that key is the word commitment. Have you forgotten what you used to say to me? I haven't. There are only two creatures of value on the face of this earth. Those with a commitment and those who require the commitment of others. And that is the thing that gives him the resolve to go back downstairs and go back into the fight. And then what's another, the, the one other interesting moment is as he's getting ready, is he turns to Mr. Thompson, the secretary. Out of curiosity, do you stand with Mr. Dickinson or do you stand with me? I stand with the general. Well, lately... I've had the oddest feeling that he's been writing to me. It's a really, really interesting moment. I do want to touch on one moment that we missed where everything feels lost. And John Hancock stands up and says, I'm still from Massachusetts, John. You know where I stand. I'll do whatever you say. No, you're the president of Congress. You're a fair man, Hancock. Stay that way. And it's the first time that Hancock after having run this whole thing, actually removes himself from his position and becomes a Massachusetts man next to uh, uh, John and is willing to maybe sacrifice his position. But even John understands in that moment, when you do that, you lose the, the, um, the ability to be impartial. And that is a lost cause overall. The Congress would be a lost cause uh, with an impartial person in, or with, without an impartial person in charge of it. So I think that's a really important moment. And of course, that connects to what he said earlier when he agreed that it should be unanimous because he no state should be in here unless it agrees with independence. All of it, the decisions he makes throughout the movie are quietly some of the best decisions throughout it. So, And that leads us into this, does anybody care? Yeah, but I, lo I love the way he sings, is anybody there? It's very reminiscent for me of the sequence of Rent when it's, will I lose my dignity? Will I lose my dignity mm. is a self-reflective song about, you know, confronting the idea of having AIDS and how you will die from AIDS once you get HIV, you know, or HIV will lead to AIDS and how you will die. Will I lose my dignity? Will I lose, mm -hmm. you know, what they sing about the same thing here it, is it both are calls for um, connection, safety, reassurance, you know, he's saying, is anybody there? Is Does anybody care? Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what I see? He feels lost. He feels despondent. He feels like the only one left who understands the price or the, the importance of what's happening here. It's funny. Again, this is a song I didn't like. Yeah, okay. It's too, it's too much. It doesn't... I, it, I, well, and this thing is it comes after the commitment moment with Abigail. Yeah. Is that I feel like we resolved his thing. Yeah. When she says commit, if, if we had had this moment before he, if he was left alone after the Franklin argument about slavery and cutting the claws, yeah. and we had this scene then, and then he went up to the tower and had the moment with Abigail, I think it would have been much stronger. Yeah. That's just me re-editing the film. <laughs> Does anybody see... I see. Yes, Mr. Adams. Dr. Hall, the representative from Georgia. I do. And in trying to resolve my uh, dilemma, I remembered something I'd once read, that a representative owes the people not only his industry, but his judgment 
and he betrays them if he sacrifices it to their opinion. That was written by Edmund Burke, a member of the British Parliament. And he goes up to that big board and he slides Georgia over to the yay side. How many of our politicians would benefit from that, regardless of political affiliation, would benefit from that? Those lines that are just uttered there by Dr. Hall uh, from Georgia, the idea that you elected me because you trust me as your representative, trust my decision-making process. Do not make me a slave to your whims, to your opinion. Trust that I will make the right decision because you elected me to make the right decision. And that used to be the unwritten contract, the unwritten understanding between representatives and their constituency. And now it's like, no, do what I want you to do. You're basically a puppet. My hand is up your ass and just do what I tell you to do. As opposed to trusting that they have our best interests in mind. Well, know. this is this is if we can trust them. Fair. Fair. You know, but then we have, I mean, uh, yeah, it's it's systemic that we can't because people who were who people who go into politics nowadays rarely go into politics because they have to because they want to uh, make a better country. I, I think that's becoming rarer and rarer. I may, think it's may, all, maybe all they did at the beginning. You know? Yes, at the beginning, but I don't yeah. think they do I mean, necessarily like, I, now. I think the equation is very complicated because I think the pressure, like one of the pressures is to be a slave to the people. Mm-hmm. I actually don't think that's what's happening as much. I think they're a slave to the party. I think frequently fair enough, fair they, enough. they have to vote the party line with the party because if they don't vote the party line with the party, they can't get anything they want. Yeah. Because there, there's some areas they're not listening to people at all. There are certain things that can never pass that are basically supported by 80% of the population of the United States, you know? So there are a lot of things where it's like, yes, I want them to use their own personal judgment. Sometimes I want them to listen to people. The big one I don't want them to do is vote in lockstep with a party, regardless of their convictions. We tear off to July 2nd Mm -hmm. and now it's time for the vote. And in comes Delaware and Caesar Rodney and everyone rises He's obviously quite ill, and we have the vote. New Hampshire, yay. Massachusetts, yay. Rhode Island, yay. New York, abstains. Courteously. Courteously. (laughs) New Jersey, yay. Pennsylvania, they confer. And this is Franklin, Dickinson, we know on opposite teams, and Judge Wilson, who has been just Dickinson's toady this whole time. Delaware, where one guy was against independence, and the fact that Caesar Rodney is back means they have a two-to-one majority, and he votes yay. He is the hero. This elderly, ill, dying man uses his last bit of energy to save independence. Yeah. Ready for history? (laughs) Oh, no. He was 47. Yeah. Um, He did have skin cancer. He didn't die till eight years later. He died in 1784. Okay. And uh, he he did arrive just in the nick of time, but not because he was old and sick. He just was, he rode back uh, 80 miles all by himself on a horse because he was doing something. We don't even know what he was doing. So he's a young guy who rode back and got there just at the nick of time, not an ill old guy. Wow. (laughs) But dramatically, this is great. It works great. Of course. Maryland, yes. Virginia, yes. North Carolina yields to South Carolina. That's not actually what happened. They were a yes from the beginning. South Carolina turns to Mr. Adams. Remove the offending passage from your declaration. If we did that, we would be guilty of what we ourselves are rebelling against. And for a moment, Rutledge breaks for a moment, just for a second, just for a beat. 
he takes in this logic and understands that Adams is right and then re- recovers and says, nevertheless. Nevertheless, remove it or South Carolina will bury now and forever your dream of independence. And Adams starts to waver and he turns to Franklin and says, mark me, Franklin, we give in on this issue. Posterity will never forgive us. That's probably true, but we won't hear a thing. We'll be long gone. I hate that line. I hate that line, Steve, because too many politicians cop out with that. Mm. We're not going to have to pay for this because we'll be out of office or we'll be dead by the time our kids' kids have to pay for the short-term thinking that we're taking advantage of now so we can keep getting voted back into office. And yeah. I hated that line. It's the one line in the, he utters in the, in the show, in the movie, rather, that really just rankles me. This idea that, oh, we'll be long gone. We won't hear it. Oh, we're safe. We'll be safe. That's, that's a privileged thinking, this idea mm. that, well, we won't take the consequences from it because, because guess what? We did. The Civil War, yeah. everything, everything that happened from this decision can be, t- uh, can be you know, traced back to this moment. Everything that happened since can be traced back to this moment. And Franklin's saying this, you, they will. Uh, and he, I would imagine that he did hear it for quite some time until he passed. This idea of having slaves being okay with slavery in the world. Um, I do, however, like this next line. Besides, what will posterity think we were? Demigods, we're men, no more, no less, trying to get a nation started against greater odds than a more generous God would have allowed. That's a good line. This goes to everything we've been saying. You know, that yeah. this is not, none of this is simple. This is not black and white. First things first, John. Independence, America. If we don't secure that, what difference will the rest make? And that is what I'm questioning a little bit at this moment. <laughs> and they turn to Jefferson. You're the one who wrote it. And he says, I wrote it all, Mr. Yeah. Adams. And he gets up and he crosses it out. There it is, Rutland. You have your slavery. Little good may it do you. Now vote, damn you. Mr. President, the fair colony of South Carolina says yay. And it's kind of weird to see the Declaration of Independence manhandled in this way. I'm a little, I mean, right. I'm a little weird, you know. They wrote, like, a, they, they wrote a better version. I'm sure they, they did. The printers, the printers did, yeah. But yeah, the way he brought it over was so dismissive. Uh, but, you know, and, and risked, by the way, he risked Rutledge going, you know what, fuck you. Sure. Don't talk to me like that. I'm walking right out there with the South. But, you know, Rutledge, a man of his word, voted uh, in favor of independence and the okay. rest of the South as well. I'm going to give you my last historical inaccuracy, and this is, goes perfectly to the point of something making the choice that is the correct choice for the film because it is more okay. dramatic. Is this about the kilts? No. Okay. No, it's not about the kilts <laughs> or the bagpipes. So here's the thing. This did not happen this way. Oh, okay. There were two votes. The first vote was on independence. The second vote was on amendments to and rewriting the declaration. By the time they removed the slave clause, everyone had already agreed to independence. Mm. So independence happened on the second. The document, the rewrites of the document happened on the third and the fourth. Wow. Adams and most of them thought we would be celebrating happy July 2nd for years because that's when the vote of independence actually happened. And so this thing about independence being dependent upon removing the slave clause is not true. And here's the thing. So it's very inaccurate. But I think you had to do that this way. Because if you had it way it's historically, it's not dramatic at all. Right. We're not thinking about slavery. 
we're not thinking about these important issues. We're not pointing out hypocrisy. All the th we don't have Adam, and because Adams, remember, he always thought the slave clause was going to go. Yep. Is that all of this drama focuses us on important things, and it makes the film have a dramatic, climactic moment. Mm -hmm. So I think, although it's not accurate, it is the absolutely right choice what they did. Yeah. And North Carolina says yes, and Georgia says yes, and now we're down to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania regrets all of the inconvenience that such distinguished men as Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson were put to just now. They might have kept their document intact for all the difference it will make. Because Dickinson knows that he has the votes. It's him and Wilson against Franklin. Pennsylvania says... Just a moment. I ask the delegation be polled. And Franklin says yes, and Dickerson says no, and they turn to Wilson, and there's a long pause. There it is, Mr. Wilson. It's all up to you now. The whole question of American independence rests squarely on your shoulders. <laughs> to put hands on this ineffectual guy. What does he say? Like thousands of map makers around, oh, map makers around the world are waiting for you to make the decision. <laughs> and, and, and what he says is so funny, which is basically, I'm not like you guys. I don't yeah. want to be remembered. Yes, well, whether you want it or not, James, there's no way of avoiding it. Not necessarily, John. If I go with them, I'll just be one among dozens. No one will ever remember the name of James Wilson. But if I vote with you, I'll be the man who prevented American independence. And that is the reason that he cast the final vote for independence. Two moments here that are interesting with Dickinson, because he says to him, to Wilson, we must not allow Franklin to confuse us with one of his... We mustn't let Dr. Franklin create one of his confusions. One of his confusions, right? Yeah. And don't we hear that nowadays? Oh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, those those elitists, those intelligent people getting degrees, uh, they're just trying to create confusion by making us think harder about a situation. We know what the truth is. And that's that kind of stuff, that kind of insult of education that's hidden underneath a comment like that. Uh, because the person insulting that education is not as educated and doesn't like to be made to feel uneducated, even though they secretly know they are uneducated. And so it's like, so by making fun of calling it a confusion, when in fact it's actually logical interpretation, analysis, and exploration is a way of devaluing that kind of intelligence being brought to the fore and being actually discussed and deliberated. And so that's a moment too. But Dickinson's like legitimate hurt that Wilson turns on him at yeah. the end. and then his lashing out as a final shot at this whole thing saying is this how countries are born by a non-entity trying to preserve the anonymity he so richly deserves and so Steve your point you made earlier about should America even exist should have America have been like this is Dickinson at this moment saying sure this how countries in such a weak ass way is this how this country is born? Once again, remember, this is the 70s. This is as much as you show this for Nixon, it's still the 70s. There's a, you know, some, I don't know, what an undercurrent running underneath a movie of questioning America, questioning the creation of America, questioning how it was 
created. Because if this is a John Wayne rah-rah movie, there's no way it's down to Dickinson who just doesn't want to be famous that the, that the, uh, the country has created. It's more of a, yeah, you know, this is more like, uh, you know, and I, and I love it. Wait, I what, love was that, it. what was that noise again? <laughs> it's like, a, uh, should we have done that? And so I love that, to be honest with you. So even the villains or the quote-unquote antagonists of the movie- Say interesting things. Say interesting things and legitimate- comments legitimate uh, uh attacks and i like that about the film so you remember how a few minutes ago i said that i was giving you my last historical inaccuracy <laughs> <laughs> i have two more that i forgot Dickinson never said this yeah, go ahead. Yeah. that's correct yeah. um so uh wilson had not been a judge he wasn't a judge until after this oh wow he okay. was not the swing vote he was always for independence oh he was not an ineffectual person. He was considered one of the leading thinkers behind the American cause, consistently supporting and arguing for independence. What? Yep. Um, the only reason that he hadn't cast his vote is he wanted his district fully caucused before he oh. cast his vote. But he was always for independence. Here's the more interesting one. Yeah. John Dickinson, Dickerson and the other member, there were 50 something, 53 people, I think, that were in this Continental yeah, Congress. Yeah, yeah. We've slimmed it way down to a much yeah. smaller number. Yeah. So uh, Dickinson and the other guy from Pennsylvania, Robert Morse, are the two people that wanted to vote against independence. Okay. They didn't vote against independence. When they saw what was going to happen, they absented themselves. They left in order for the resolution to be passed unanimously. Wow. This had to look to the world like a yeah. unanimous decision, even though they disagreed with it. Sacrificing for the greater good. Yes. Interesting. It is passed 12 to nothing because of our absenting, because of uh, <laughs> abstaining New York. They have the declaration all ready to be signed. I guess they wrote a clean one really fast. And um, uh, Hancock says, the chair proposes for our mutual security and protection. No man can sit in this Congress without attaching his name. I cannot in good conscience, sign such a document. I will never stop hoping for our eventual reconciliation with England, but because in my own way, I regard America no less than does Mr. Adams, I will join the army and fight in her defense, even though I believe that fight to be hopeless. Wow. And he leaves. And he really did. Dickinson joined the military. I believe he was a colonel. Two more things about him. Dickinson freed his slaves in 1777, the next year. Wow. Something Thomas Jefferson never did. <sighs> wow. Here's what Thomas Jefferson said about Dickinson. He wrote, his name will be consecrated in history as one of the great worthies of the revolution. <laughs> this is the guy who's cast as the villain in this. Right, movie. right, right. It is now July 3rd. <laughs> the last argument we have is one you alluded to before. Yes. Unalienable versus inalienable. This is a great sequence. It's a good little funny <laughs> bit. Fine, I'll let it go. I'll speak to that. Oh, good um, for you, John. Good for you. Apparently, John Adams was in charge of the printing of it, so he could have switched it. No surprise that he was in charge of the printing of it. And now it's time to sign the declaration. And John Hancock being the first signer signs. People comment on that it's a big yeah. uh, signature, which it is. And so then Fat George some, can read it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some, some jokes and we're having fun. And in the midst of this in walks our soldier again. Yeah. And now we hear another depressing letter from George Washington <laughs> that there are 5,000 troops surrounded by 25,000 of the enemy. There's a huge fleet that's come into New York. Yeah. Um, and a lot, he says, as I write these words, the enemy is plainly in sight beyond the river, how it will end only Providence knows. 
dear God, what brave men I shall lose before this business ends. Yeah. And Thompson reading it is very moved. Oh yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and now this last sequence is all in one shot. The lighting has changed. We tear off that big calendar and we see that it is now the 4th of July. And Morris, the representative to New York, says, to hell with New York. I'll sign it everyone. anyway. Mm-hmm. And everyone applauds. And now we go through the names and the signatures. And Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware. And they bring it to Caesar Rodney, which is a great moment yeah. to sign it. Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. The music grows more ominous. Georgia. The music has grown very ominous, and the camera has pulled back and back yeah. so far that, in fact, they had to cut a hole in the wall of the soundstage in order to get the shot this wide. Because you, you see, there was a wall there throughout the whole um, True. movie. True. And yeah. Now we're way, way back, and it looks very, very painterly, very reminiscent of the signing of the Declaration of Independence paintings. And we pull back, and we go into a freeze frame, and we go into sepia, and then dissolve the actual signatures on the Declaration of Independence and end with the sound of the ringing of the Liberty Bell. And by the way, this ending is not an inspirational song. It's almost a song of dread. No, it's very dark. Yeah. And that's like fascinating to see that. Like that's, this is supposed to be some uplifting film about signing the Declaration of Independence. But look, it's telling you, look at the cost and the price mm-hmm. we paid for this country to be in existence. Was the cost worth it? You know, it leaves you with that thought as you walk out of that theater. I'd be surprised anybody walks out of the theater and go rah, rah, rah about America. It's, it's more not. Up. It is yeah, exactly. It's definitely not rah, think. rah, rah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I'd love to, uh, real quick, I'd love to what, wait, what, um, Caesar Rodney, when he when Hancock tells him to sit down. I'm oh, not Caesar Rodney. I'm sorry. Uh, who's the other guy? Uh, ah, I forget his name. The other guy that kept running to the tavern all the time. Uh, uh, it's Hopkins. Stephen Hopkins. Yeah, Hopkins. Yeah, Hopkins stands up and he and Hancock tries to get him to sit down. Hopkins says, "Nah, I want to look in each man's eyes as they sign the Declaration of Independence." Right. This idea that just I want to know for myself because I've been in this Congress a long time, been alive a long time. I want to know for myself what's going on in your eyes as you sign this, that you're really committed to this. And I, nice I appreciate that moment. Yeah. Uh, I really don't have very much about reception at all. Mm. Um, it, uh, it grossed $1.8 million in the first six weeks, which is a moderate hit for 1972. It's not in, you know, comparison to things that are coming out like the Godfather at that time. Um, uh, I saw one review, which you're not going to like, but it was so funny that I have to read it to you. It said, <laughs> this is from the New York times. The music is resolutely unmemorable. The lyrics sound as if they'd been written by someone high on root beer. <laughs> I just thought that was such a terrible, <laughs> but hilarious bad review line. Oh that my gosh. To you. <laughs> That's terrible. That's a terrible. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so I just want to go into one small thing of history because we're talking about some of the most interesting people in our nation's history. And I want to talk about what happened to them next, okay. which is, of course, John Adams became the first vice president of the United States under George Washington, and he became the second president of the United States. And as much as he was a critical, important, and profound person in the founding of our nation, both in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution, 
wasn't such a good president. <laughs> and in particular, the Alien Sedition Acts, which is maybe one of the worst choices our early government made, other than, of course, slavery, um, was really not good. And it caused Jefferson to run against him in 1800. And they did not stay friends. No, <laughs> Adams no. and Jefferson truly, truly disliked each other. And particularly, so Adams had been a president who did all these things that Jefferson didn't like. And then Jefferson is really, it's that election that really forms political parties because mm -hmm. he formed the Democratic Republicans, which is really the Democrats of today. And that Washington and Adams and Hamilton all believed that they were Federalists, but did not believe in parties. They thought right. political parties would ruin the country and Washington, ironic. yeah, ironic. And so here you have Jefferson, who didn't like what Adams did as president, and then Adams didn't like what Je what Jefferson was doing in forming these parties and what he did as president. And so they battled huge public battles, insulting each other and all this stuff, um, until they were just not on speaking terms until January of eighteen twelve which is for a few years, both of them had kind of been hinting at some mutual friends like, I'd kind of like to talk to Jefferson again. <laughs> I kind of miss at John Adams. I'd like to, because they shared this really important part of our history. And, and they kind of got the hint from the friends that maybe this would be cool. And so on, the, on New Year's Day in 1812, John Adams writes a very brief note to Thomas Jefferson and says, you know, hey man, hope you're doing good. That's not, what it, that's not what he said at all, <laughs> but it was that kind of note. And Jefferson wrote back like, I, I'm good. I'm glad to hear from you. I hope you're well as well. And that began one of these remarkable series of correspondence between two of the most brilliant and erudite and literate people in the history of the country writing back and forth with increasing frequency. Um, and this set of letters is really profound. And then what happens, and this is really why I want to bring the whole thing up, mm. is the what I think is one of the craziest coincidences in the history of America. On July 4th, 1826, 50 years to the day from the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both died within five hours of each other. Yeah. Jefferson died in the morning. John Adams' final words, the last words he spoke on his deathbed is, Thomas Jefferson still survives. <laughs> <laughs> which he hadn't actually. How, which died. he hadn't known, yeah. right, because yeah. he had known that Thomas Jefferson had, had passed away earlier in the day. You know, I, you know, I, I remember hearing that story because I watched that John Adams uh, uh, mm. uh, film, rather, or TV series, rather, on HBO, which was great to watch. Giamatti, yeah. One of the most sour... How, oh, dour is the word I'm looking for. Sorry. One of the most dour uh, TV series you're ever going to watch because uh, Giamatti plays Adams is just a completely unsatisfied person uh, throughout the entirety of his mm -hmm. life, you know, and Laura Linney is fantastic. And Atlantis Roach is a great Thomas Jefferson. Uh, but yes, this story endures. And I compare this story of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams dying on the same day to Theodore Roosevelt, who lost his mother and his first mm. wife within hours of each other in the same house on the same day. And so on the same night, rather. And so the, it's incredible how these coincidences can 
uh, come up in life and in history uh, when dealing with presidents. And so it's fascinating to explore that. But certainly their correspondence is something to study as they got. And, you know, this is so ironic because people say, oh, well, you know, we can't have women as presidents because they can be really emotional and quite petty. And it's like, <laughs> look at these guys. Every, they're all petty. I mean, we're, we're, we're uh, just finished watching Hamilton. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, Steve and I uh, did a review of it for the Outlaw Nation channel or have or are going to be doing one if you haven't watched it yet. But like um, in in that interaction with it, you see the pettiness overall of everybody, you know, of everybody being upset. You spoke ill of me, sir. Dual time. You know, it's just that kind of stuff was going around since the beginning of the birth of this country. Very sensitive people. Uh, you know, we look at our founding fathers and we think they have thick skin, but they all almost all except for Washington, it seems like almost all got offended all the time and held grudges and uh, had issues and didn't speak to people for years. So it's like high school. It's a pettiness of high school even at the highest levels of uh, accomplishment and intelligence, um, you know, and uh, 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 status in this country. So it's so interesting to, to explore that. But also, you know, both of these gentlemen are incredibly intelligent. So uh, why wouldn't they be, uh, in, in, in essence, um, insulted and uh, standoffish and uh, eventually silent towards each other for a while until, Steve, as you and I both know, as you get older as men, you kind of start to mellow a little bit. You kind of start to put away some of that anger. You figure out how to kind of find the peace or be the bigger person. And especially as you probably get older into your 60s and 70s and 80s or whatever, you're just in that place where you're like, you know, what was I mad at him for again? Yeah, I don't even remember. It's good. There's so much that has happened since. And you start to want to go back and maybe reconnect with the people you lost touch with who were really there with you during some of the most important years of your life. And certainly Jefferson and Adams were around each other during the birth of this country and during their presidencies. So uh, uh, rekindling that connection um, uh, was uh, in the cards. Well, and they were literally the last surviving members of the Continental mm -hmm. Congress. So they're the only people that remember this, yeah. this life, this world, this moment in history. And I do just want to comment briefly on, on what you said, because I think that's totally true about how we want to elevate these famous people to be you know marble statues and they didn't have all these emotions but man if you look at whether it's lyndon johnson or you look at um uh you look at taft or you look there are all these presidents who are brilliant and talented and interesting and complicated and angry and vengeful and nasty sorry i don't mean to say that taft was those things <laughs> johnson definitely was um, <laughs> poor taft <laughs> You know, he just wanted to be on the Supreme Court. That's all he really wanted. He never wanted to be president. Teddy made him be, president. President. Made him be president. Yeah. <laughs> so I will give my final thoughts first because it's really your film. Hmm. Um, I don't love the movie. I, I appreciate the movie. There are things in the movie that I loved. There's some very fun, light musical numbers that I really like. I like William Daniels. I like Ben Franklin. Um, there are, and I do like Ken Howard as Thomas Jefferson. The Molasses to Rum to Slaves song is very disturbing and powerful. Um, what I do like the most about it, and this has happened over and over again, is sometimes our most interesting conversations are not necessarily about movies that both of us love. Yeah. Is that there was so much here because at this moment in time, discussing the origins of this country, both the great things about its origin and the original sins of the origin of this country, most particularly yeah. slavery, it was important to have this conversation and it was important for me to have this conversation. Yeah. And we wouldn't have had it if I hadn't watched the movie. Mm -hmm. I, 
I think it's a perfectly good movie. It, to me, it's not a great movie, but I did enjoy it. And I think for anyone who both is a lover of history yeah. and then also a lover of music and a thinker about film, this is a really interesting movie, particularly because it comes much that we talked about, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in our last, in the first part, is it comes at this moment of the transition from old school Hollywood into the film and mm. cinema of the 70s. And this sits in there Mostly, I think it's old school with a little bit of influences, a little bit of darkness, particularly in the song about slavery and the last moment that are yeah. very much of the 70s. So that's my final thoughts. Well, well, look, this is one of my favorite musicals, bar none. Uh, and I don't care what other reviews say could give a rat's ass. I enjoyed it. I love the music. I love the lyrics of pretty much almost every song. Not every song, obviously, but most of the songs. Uh, I like the performances here. This is William's, William Daniels at his best. Howard DeSilva at his best. Uh, a young Ken Howard, which you can enjoy. A, Blythe, a beautiful Blythe Danner. And every single actor, aside from maybe that... Uh, I can't remember what what uh, state he's from. I he was one of the guys that was supposed to write the Declaration of Independence. I just don't like his portrayal. It feels very theatrical. But everyone else feels very organic within what's happening in the film. And you can connect and understand these people and understand these characters and what they're going through. And I love the fact that the film doesn't shy away from the darker aspects uh, of what created this country. And I, I, Roger Ebert wrote his review saying, you know, it's, it's an insult to Jefferson, blah, 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 blah. Whatever. It's an, it, I, I, to me, I think it's an interesting portrayal of the situation that does not default into a lifetime approach, lifetime channel approach. It does not default to everything being hunky-dory and happy-go-lucky and, uh, you know, we got over that slavery thing. No, it right. deals with the reality of what was actually uh, what the compromises and sacrifices that actually had to be made for this country to to exist, to come into existence. And then it was just getting that vote. Never mind that we had to actually fight a war to win that independence, to achieve that independence as a country. There was more to come. This is just one piece of that puzzle to get us to become full, a full-fledged uh, country overall. And clearly there must be some, still, some bubbling, great, powerful interest in this movie, it has gone from video cassette to laser disc. There's been director's cuts. There's a 4K Blu-ray, 4K master. Why would you do that for a movie that uh, that uh, supposedly didn't do well at the box office? It's because there is still an interest amongst a lot of Americans for this movie, and I think because it is it is as I wouldn't say as honest, but it's certainly it's surprisingly um, frank about some of the darker aspects of our past um, that uh, doesn't get sugarcoated in the film. And thankfully uh, uh, it doesn't so that we can appreciate a larger picture of how this country came to be. And I think it's an important film to watch. I think it's a uh, um, one that will stay with you. If it touches you, it will stay with you for the rest of your life. And like Steve, maybe you watch it now and it doesn't, it wouldn't hold up for you if you're watching it for first time later in life. But at the time that I watched it, it got its hook in, hook in me good as a historical, as a lover of historical films. And then every time I revisit it, I get something new out of it, depending on what, what year I'm watching it or what age I'm watching it at. Uh, and uh, like Steve, it starts to make you question a little bit the existence of the country as you get older when you watch this thing and see what happened since. So, you know, that's a, I, I love this movie for that and uh, for so many other reasons that I can't eloquently state here. 
So that, I, first of all, I think that was very eloquent. <laughs> and that is what we think of 1776. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. Do a search for The Cinephiles on Facebook to leave your messages. You can subscribe to the show on, show on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, Google Play. Leave your reviews on iTunes, comments on YouTube. If you want to support the show, we have brand new tiers now that you can yeah. support on patreon.com slash the cinephiles you can buy or stream 1776 via amazon prime along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net if you want to reach me you can do it at, on twitter at sr morris on instagram at sr morris one the cinephiles has its own social media presence cine underscore files on twitter the cinephiles podcast on instagram and john has an entire nation of social media <laughs> and internet presence. John, how would they find you? Yeah, please. You can find the Owl Nation. You can find me first at the Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And come and subscribe to the Outlaw Nation YouTube channel where we do a bunch of content surrounding film, sports, entertainment, uh, professional wrestling, and assorted other things there, reviews, trailer reactions, what have you, all there on the Outlaw Nation channel, which is youtube.com slash John Roca Says. Also, Steve Morris. If you didn't know this, Steve Morris was a recent guest on the Outlaw Nation uh, show. And if you haven't watched that episode, do yourself a favor and go and enjoy two hours and 20 minutes of Steve and I talking about uh, our journey on the Cinefiles, our love of films, and answering questions from the fans who chimed in, and Steve's upcoming book uh, about directing. So all of that is covered there. If you haven't watched that episode yet, go and watch it or listen to it on the Outlaw Nation Podcast Network. I have that up as well with all my content. For those of you who just like to consume it in podcast format, you can do that on the Outlaw Nation Podcast Network, wherever you download podcasts. Um, and first of all, it was really fun appearing on Outlaw Nation. I look forward to doing it again. And I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time with another great film on The Cinephiles. <laughs> 